the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Yes, he is. At least that's what they tell me. I checked my ID at the door. They let me in anyway. (laughs) How are you? Welcome. Good to have you with us. It is uh, 18th of March, for those not keeping track. And on this Thursday, Craig Roberts speaking, keeping you some company here for the next couple of hours as we talk about news and issues and events of the day. And, of course, uh, we'll talk the markets a little bit later on. We had a slight pullback after all that hip, hip, hurrah. Broke 33,000 hoopla yesterday, just kind of, you know, easing off the gas pedal a bit today as uh, the markets closed just below uh, 33,000. So we'll get an update for you coming up in our number two tonight. Dan Beltran will join us from Vitucci and Associates. So much to do. Let's get down to business, proving yet once again you may run, but you cannot hide. Joining me uh, very long-time guest on this program and uh, a uh, provocateur <laughs> in some arenas. No, I mean that in the nicest of terms. I really do. And I must wish him a belated, happy St. Patty's Day. Here is teacher, writer, constitutional lawyer, reporter, and one-time political operative for Pat Buchanan's presidential campaign, Mr. Joe Murray. And Mr. Murray, counselor, great to have you with us. Aaron Gobra, good to be here, Craig. It's been too long. How are you doing? Well, it has indeed, uh, brother, been a long time. I am I am doing well. Uh, the rest of the world, you know, continues to sort of reel from all that's going on. And, uh, you know, I guess we're just kind of um, kind of trying to find our own way here. My goodness, the last time we yeah. spoke here on the radio must have been pre-election um maybe yeah. even well before that and i think we were we were just then trying to figure out what all of this covid-19 business really meant and wow what a difference um yeah. year makes could exactly. you ever you have imagined you joe that we would be talking about more than 500,000 american lives lost no, I didn't. And, you know, like every other American out there, you know, I, I remember when this was starting to unfold. And I'm a little bit of a germaphobe. So when st- some of this started back in February, you know, I sat up and took notice. And, you know, I stockpiled a couple of things. You know, I, I got food. I got rice, got the staples. Never in my wildest dreams did I think Lysol and toilet paper would be the big products. Uh, you know, so I kind of missed the boat on that one. <laughs> so I had tons of rice. You know, we had rice well into July and, and August. But yeah, I missed out on the Lysol. That would have been uh, <laughs> that would have been good. But seriously, uh, no. I mean, I don't. 
I think this is something, and, you know, I see what's going on. This is a generational impact. Uh, you see 500,000 dead. You see we're starting to see a light at the end of the tunnel, and uh, you're, you're going to have to realize we're probably going to have to live with this disease uh, for a very, very long time. And you look at what has happened in education uh, with many teachers' unions still resisting needing the need to go back to school and students that are going to be having such a, a, a learning gap and education loss that it's going to be generational. I mean, you cannot learn virtually as you can learn in a classroom. It's just nothing about it. And so you look at the lives lost, the learning loss, and, and just really the socialization lost. Uh, I mean, it's, you know, I was just at the store today, and I realized right when I was about to get out, I didn't have my mask on, and you get that panic. Uh, you know, that, oh, don't have a mask, can't get in the store. And, and yeah, there's just a whole psychological aspect to this that I think we'll be reeling from uh, for years after. And as we try to sort of sort through all of this, and I realize the, the the literal impact, the emotional impact, especially if you've had someone within your sphere um, either contract COVID and are now dealing with the long-term after effects or, or maybe even worse still, die from it that we're, we're trying to kind of just you know figure our way through it and I have to wonder from your viewpoint Joe as you look at what has transpired over the last 12 months and, it, and it's almost literally 12 months since the the stay-at-home orders were first handed down it, it, is the apparent challenge that we particularly here in America have had in dealing with this in your opinion because this disease is so incredibly aggressive perhaps unlike anything else that we've seen in in certainly recent memory or is it that or perhaps um, just the manner in which we were slow to step up to the plate largely in denial eager to get it over with and I ask that question because as here we're talking about reopening states kids going back to school um, almost 100 million vaccines delivered in very short order, more to come. We're all kind of feeling as if, gee, we, we think maybe we got this thing handled. And then I'm reading in the news today, Paris is back down on lockdown. The, the, yeah. the president there, Emmanuel Macron, said we are going to engage in at least 30 days as they try to get a handle on what appears to be yet another spike of COVID-19. They're not alone. Rome, north, almost the entirety of the boot, same thing. Barbers, clothing stores, furniture shops, the like, restaurants, all closing. The only ones allowed to remain open, just selling essential goods. I realize that there are variants now that are beginning to um, crop up, but I have to wonder, is this because the disease is just so aggressive or has most of the world, and in particular America, largely been kind of slow with the uptake and asleep with the switch on this? I'm going to meet somewhere in the middle, Craig, especially in America. One of the biggest issues with this disease is that in this country we have ingrained in our, in our cultural and social DNA that rugged individualism uh, that we like to kind of chart our own path and, and beat to our own drum or march to our own drum. And when, you know, we're not big on government intrusion into our lives, and I'm, I'm not trying to get political here. I'm just trying to go over the history uh, of this country. So when you have something like this happen, which has not happened in our lifetime uh, and, and most of the people's lifetime, uh, you know, unless you are going to be well up there for the whole Spanish flu aspect of it, but most people don't remember the Spanish flu. 
Uh, and, and when you have somebody telling you, the government of all people saying, you have to stay home, you can't leave, and then they tell you you have to wear a mask wherever you go, uh, they haven't told us we have to get a vaccine. Uh, but when, when the government starts telling us what to do, there's that, that, that contrarian nation, or notion that is just ingrained in us that we kind of resist that. Now, this isn't an excuse. I think this is just to say, Craig, people have – it's not that this disease is aggressive because it is. It's also that this disease is very invisible in the sense that unless it has hit you, uh, you don't necessarily get it. Uh, and when I say hit you, I mean you or your family members. So you have people that may have been fortunately uh, unscathed on this, and you're sitting here, why am I sitting home? Why am I not able to go to work? Why am I struggling to put food on the table? I want to just get out and do, make my living. I want to get back to normal. And there's just so much of a perfect storm here, Craig, in, in terms of, of what this disease is, how aggressive it is, the social aspect of it that we're not supposed to be cooped up like this, and the mere fact that we have to get back to work. We have to get back to school. We can't just sit at home. And, and I think that has been the problem, more so with America than in Europe, is that we don't like to do that, and we don't like to sit home. I mean, if you look at it now, I was just kind of thinking, you're talking about the lockdowns in Europe right now, but across the country, um, you know, colleges, and they're on spring break. People are traveling. They're, they're traveling to Florida. They're traveling to Texas. They're traveling to these states that are opening. Uh, it's going to be interesting to see what happens in the weeks after this, Craig. That's what I'm going to be looking towards, uh, to see whether or not we've turned a corner on this. You refer, Joe, to America's sense of rugged individualism, and I have to wonder if maybe that is now backfiring on us. It mm -hmm. certainly served us well in winning two world wars, settling the West, mining gold in California. We probably couldn't have accomplished those things if we didn't have that real rough sense of stick to and and, uh, you know, not, not, uh, not um, kind of allowing ourselves to be told no or you can't. Um, but now I'm wondering if that really, in some arenas, um, has been sort of our Achilles heel. You know, the old adage, your, your, your greatest asset is oftentimes your, your greatest liability. Do you think that's the case to some degree here? It could be. I, I think the other thing that we're looking at, too, and I think this is what a lot of people look at, is they look at the mortality rates. This Again, this is not to trivialize because there are 500,000 dead. It's nothing to sneeze at. That's, that's serious. That's, that, that's solemn. That is sobering. But when you look at the, the mortality rate, I think this isn't the blitzkrieg of London. Uh, this isn't the British marching on the Capitol building. Um, so people, it's hard for people to justify in their minds the, the sacrifice. And I think that is where you are right to a certain degree, that it is a little bit of our Achilles heel. But I think the problem is, is that, again, it, the, it still hasn't hit a lot of people. So when something doesn't hit you and it doesn't impact you directly – it's very hard to give up such a huge sacrifice when you're kind of just you're kind of going into it somewhat blind and you're you're not necessarily feeling it. You might be seeing what's going on, but it's not hitting you, and therefore it's hard for people to say, okay, I haven't had a direct impact on this in terms of death, so therefore why am I sitting home? And, and so it's it's going to be a struggle back and forth. And it and it, Greg, you and I are both history buffs. This has been the the struggle throughout all humanity the rights of the individual versus the needs of the collective society. Um, this, this struggle has been going on for quite some time. Um, I, I think the jury's still out, Craig, on this. I'm not sure exactly what the jury's going to render, but I think it's just maybe a tad too soon for it to come back. 
It'll be fascinating if we could jump into a time machine and head out uh, 50 years in the future and see the way history judges this current generation. I, I guess one of the issues, Joe, that I also struggle with is I think about the, um, the wonderful advancements that have been made in modern medicine, largely, not exclusively, but largely because of the efforts by medical science here in America. I mean, we almost single-handedly eradicated smallpox, measles, polio, and here we sit as the country that has been least capable of getting a handle on the impact of COVID-19. Almost twice the number of deaths of the next leading country, and that's not saying much when you consider that country is Brazil, where Bolsonaro there has just been a campaign of denial and deflection since day one and continues to be never-ending. So you kind of look at this and wonder, what, what happened? <laughs> Why did we seem to, to um, get so far behind the eight ball as what had been the proudest, most successful developed nation perhaps in the history of the planet? Yeah, and, and I think part of that... I mean, let's look at some of the gold standards. You look at Korea, and uh, you look at what was happening over in Asia. Um, one of the reasons we weren't able to match that is because we have freedoms and we have a constitution. Uh, where you could have the governments in those countries say, you're staying home or we're putting you in jail. You can't do that here. And, and again, this goes back to the whole construct. Now, I think, and I might be a little bit more of an optimist here, more than I'm usually a pessimist most of the time, but... I'm trying to look big picture, and yes, it was very much slow to start. Yes, we did ban travel from China, but I don't think we were taking this seriously. And I'm not saying this just President Trump. If you remember, he was being impeached while this was all starting to unravel. I think both parties, both, both branches of government, neglected us here. Uh, I think it, it's not just one person. I think it was a universal uh, mishap here in the sense that we did not take this seriously at the time. We thought it could be contained. And, and part of the problem that we have here, Craig, is that we have so embraced, and these are issues we've talked about forever and a day, this whole globalization allowed this virus to get on a superhighway and just spread. Uh, I mean, and, and, and I know we have been talking, I know when I was on the campaign trail with Pat Buchanan, we warned that, look, the more globalized we become, the more vulnerable we become to not only terrorism and not only crime, but also epidemics. And again, it's hard to take this seriously because I don't think anyone on in Christmas of 2019 or New Year's Eve of 2019 ever knew what was coming. It was, it was a humongous slap in the face. But I do think if you look at Operation Warp Speed, if you look at today, one million people vaccinated, I think where we might have kind of dropped the ball in the first half, I think we're going to be redeemed in the second half. Well, from your lips to God's ears, because we certainly need a good dose of redemption here. If one thing that this nation is clamoring for from in, you know, individuals who own small businesses on Main Street uh, to kids going to the school down the block, and that is some return to normalcy. With me today is constitutional lawyer, writer, teacher, reporter, Joe Murray, kind of breaking down the big events of the day and the week and giving you some insights as to uh, where we've been, where we're headed, and most importantly, the critical lessons we can learn, hopefully, along the way. We'll take a brief time out, get you updated on some traffic. Back with more here on the Thursday edition of Lifeline from KFAX. 
And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. And we're back to our conversation with author, teacher, constitutional lawyer, and reporter Joe Murray talking about the big events of, uh, well, they're becoming the big events of our lifetime, I suppose, in in many respects, Joe. And I want to kind of do a a slight shift here. You made reference to Korea prior to the break in context of their handling of COVID-19 early on. Now, while South Korea has not been in the news much, we're seeing North Korea emerging back into the headlines again. And between what appears to be maybe just more saber rattling and kind of trying to, I suppose, prove a point to the new guy um, with the the presidency of of Joe Biden getting underway here, it's starting to feel as we look at not only what's been transpiring with Korea over many years now, a very cold relationship with China. A lot of that has to do with the trade war. It has to do with Taiwan, um, some other issues in there. Russia, as we know, uh, continuing to be sort of the um, the rock in America's shoe, as she has been for a long time, not only in terms of meddling in our elections, but now uh, a trading of barbs between President Biden and Putin. I just have to wonder, clearly... We're not doing real well when it comes to the relations with communist countries, Arena. But I have to, at, at a deeper level, really ponder if, as if we have solidly and maybe even officially entered into, what do we call it, Cold War 2.0? Yeah, I mean, we're, we're, it's very delicate. You know, Biden is the new guy on the block, even though he's not. He's been around for 47 years, but he's the new guy in 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. So there is going to be some global jostling there just to see what he's willing to do and what he's not willing to do. But let's let's kind of break this down a little bit. Um, I said, Craig, I've been talking about this even during George W. Bush into Barack Obama into Donald Trump and now into Joe Biden. Um, we've really missed an opportunity with Russia. Uh, NATO expansion back in the late 90s under Bill Clinton uh, turned Russia against us, and we've been pushing Russia further and further away And to me, I think it's one of the biggest geopolitical missteps that this country has ever made. Why? Because Russia would have been a natural ally in containing China and containing North Korea. Because if we're going to have a real rival on the global stage, it is going to be China. It is not going to be Russia. Russia has a population that is aging. If you go to the Urals and you go east, um, I think the average age is 68 now look at all that open land there, Craig, and who did that land used to belong to? That used to belong to the Chinese. So you know that Beijing is eyeing all that empty Russian land that is just chock full of natural resources uh, as, as potentially lost land on their part. So Russia had a vested interest to keep China at check, and if we would have had the United States and the, the Russian Federation on the same page, we would have a huge advantage in dealing with China, but we don't. Uh, we have Russia and you know, Putin demanding Biden debate, which I think would be a complete disaster. I, I don't think he's going to take that up, offer up because he doesn't even talk to the press. Uh, but then you have North Korea with Kim Jong-un, who is completely unstable, uh, and you don't know what he's going to do with his million-man army and potential weapons capacity. And you have China, China basically telling us, look, I don't care if these islands are a bunch of rocks in the South China Sea. They're ours. If you come for them, we're coming for you. 
and don't even think about interfering with Taiwan. And let's be honest, Craig, uh, our military was in bad shape when Donald Trump took over. He did rebuild it, but it's not ready to go toe-to-toe with China or North Korea. We're not there, nor should we. The American people wouldn't want that war. Why would we willingly go to war over a bunch of rocks in the South China Sea? So these folks know this, Craig. They know that America's appetite for empire is gone, and they're trying to take advantage of it. And what they see as a president who is not going to have uh, the energy and the strength to potentially fight them on every front. So Joe Biden, I think, in the first year of his presidency, is going to have to pick and choose his foreign policy battles. And he better do it wisely because one misstep, and it's going to change the whole dynamic of the uh, geopolitical stage. And it would almost seem as if there is an important um, uh, foreign policy lesson here that we have forgotten. You know, the old adage, keep your friends close and your enemies even closer. And, And once again, it just seems as if America struggles with the ability to, on a long term basis, identify who's in the friend column, who's in the frenemy column, and who's in the enemy column. And I think there are three important distinctions. And, you know, we, we've spent in recent years time offending some of our closest allies and a, I think, uh, perhaps misplaced and misguided, albeit uh, maybe um, uh, a thought that was, was desirous of a more positive outcome yeah. than what we got in terms of coddling countries like North Korea that, in, instead of sort of coming to the table and, and having a frank discussion, uh, you know, eventually go back to doing what they've always done for the better part of uh, 70 years, and that is whatever they please. And yeah. so is, is there a major failure here that we've not really understood the importance? As you point out, you know, I, I think even a child of, of a fifth grade civics understanding could could look back and say, you know, you've got some major characters uh, major characters or players here on the stage of, of the world, the world stage, um, you know, select a side that you think you would best align with against what would potentially be uh, your, your, your greatest enemy, be it an economic enemy, an ideological enemy, or a military enemy. And we've just been MIA. Yeah, uh, and, and let's, let's be honest. I think the talks with Kim Jong-un, while they were noble, uh, they're not going to go anywhere. If you want to get to North Korea, you have to go through China. Uh, China is what keeps that country afloat. And I think what we saw in the last four years was we were having a fight with China over their horrible trade practices on their manipulation of their currency and of their fleecing of the American economy. And that, that trade war took center stage. North Korea was kind of a a side note, and I, and I do think the president or President Trump tried to go over there to maybe jumpstart something. But if you really want to get North Korea in tow, you're going to do it through Beijing. And I think if we start reversing these trade policies, then Beijing's going to have little incentive to keep North Korea in tow. Uh, for what better or worse, worse, you know, China needs our market. Uh, we they need us more than we need them. I know we need each other. But in the grand scheme of things, they're the ones selling and we're the ones buying. And if you take us away, they have nothing to sell and their economy doesn't do too well. So they're going to be in our economy. They might not like it, but they're going to be in our economy. So as long as we don't – if we begin to back down with them 
and we regress to the old ways where they were able to do what they want, how they want, when they want, and we just smiled, then, yeah, I don't see any, any movement on North Korea because this country does not want any more military interventions. We have just gone through, are still going through COVID. Uh, we're seeing all this money being spent on relief bills. I don't think this, stomach, yeah, this country could stomach any type of major altercation uh, on the global stage. I just think there would be great civil unrest if there's on top of the already civil unrest. Turning to, uh, to Europe, I think one of the problems is if you go back to George Washington, he said, be wary of, uh, of you know, those entangling alliances, right? We don't want to get in them. And I think you're right. I think the reason we've been having trouble distinguishing friend, frenemy, and foe is because we're still in treaties that go back to the Cold War. Uh, the world has changed since the Cold War, and why we're still engaged in Cold War institutions, I know, well, I do know it's the military-industrial complex, but why we're still engaged in these Cold War institutions is beyond me. That doesn't mean we have to withdraw from the world. What it means is, you know, you renew your rental lease every year. Uh, maybe we should start to renew some of these treaties and maybe shift focus and use our muscle to maybe try to get global policy the way it should be. But, you know, it's just a suggestion. Yeah, <laughs> a tall order, but an important one. Um, yeah. <laughs> we're going we're gonna to put your name up for Secretary of State. Um, no, no, no. Yeah, no. you know, uh, <laughs> <laughs> a, a, a final thought on, on uh, North Korea, and that is that, you know, historically we've seen um, post-World War II that the country seems to largely understand one of two things, either the stick or the money. And if we're not willing to give them the money, then you got to use the stick. And if you can use somebody else's stick instead of your stick in keeping them in line, and in this case, as you point out, that would be China's stick, that really is where we could find the greatest leverage. And, and sadly, that dialogue you know, we're, we're surmising here because it's not been in the press, but yeah. presumably that dialogue really hasn't taken place where somebody would sit down with um, uh, Beijing and say, look, you know, we're, we're, we're happy to continue to do business with you, but the two conditions, A, you got to play fair, and B, you, you, you got to control the, uh, your, your, the dog next door, and they're not doing that. No, they're not, and that's the problem. And I don't know how much was going into that in the previous administration. I do know when it came to China, because you and I talked about it for, for years, uh, how bad they were taking advantage of us, and you weren't going to be able to correct that overnight. And I think we were in the process of correcting that, uh, and, I, and I don't know if they were trying to include North Korea into that. That's why it went silent. I don't know, but that's how you're going to do it. I mean, because the United States, the people of this country, do not want any type of war altercation with North Korea. Uh, we'd have to no. fight it halfway around the globe. Uh, it would be a very expensive, a very costly, both in blood and dollar. It's just not going to happen, and Kim Jong-un knows it, knows it. So how do you get it? It's exactly what you just said. If you cut off his gravy, he'll be coming to the table. Yeah, and, and to be sure, you know, as you point out, uh, America is growing weary of these endless wars. We've been in one here that, uh, uh, my goodness, is coming up on its 20th anniversary, uh, referring, of course, to uh, 
Afghanistan and, and Iraq, and I realize that while Iraq is not considered to be a, an active theater of war, it, there are certainly warlike dimensions um, to our presence there. And Afghanistan, well, that's, that's kind of, you know, once again, the, the, uh, the rock in our shoe. And so uh, it's, it's, it's challenging, and the notion of, of ever going back and having a repeat performance of the events of 1950 through 1953, I think, is just, a, a, you know, been there, done that, got the T-shirt, no thanks, don't wish to return. Joe Murray with us tonight. He, of course, is a teacher. He is a author, a constitutional lawyer, and a reporter. We're talking about big headline stories, and we'll get back to more of our conversation right after this. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, back to the conversation. With us today is constitutional lawyer, writer, teacher, and reporter Joe Murray. We're talking about Tim. Some of the big headline events, the uh, the world-changing events uh, that we're seeing unfold in our lifetime. One of the big things, Joe, of course, to come out of the tragic events of George Floyd, who lost his life over the Memorial Day weekend here last year, um, has been sort of a, a revisiting, I think, of the um, the racial tensions in America that quite apparently have been just bubbling down below the surface and at the same token maybe as we revisit the racial tensions also revisit some of our attitudes and there's many degrees in which that is well overdue and certainly demonstrative of the notion that we have a long way to go that said I'm wondering if we also run the risk that in the process of wanting to do the right thing we also either intentionally for some or, or otherwise unintentionally wind up doing the wrong thing. Witness, for example, the city of San Francisco, who um, not days after what happened to George Floyd, decided that Christopher Columbus's statue that uh, had graced the top of um, the little peak there at Coit's Tower in San Francisco had to come down because certain people groups find um, his role in America to be an offensive one, and we've been kind of on the, the slow effort across the nation to try and root out things that we find offensive, uh, to the point where in San Francisco, the Unified School District recently put the brakes on a plan to remove the names of 44 individuals um, for which high schools, middle schools, elementary schools throughout the uh, San Francisco USD had been named because they didn't quite live up to today's modern muster. Included on that list is Abraham Lincoln, who allegedly, in spite of signing the Emancipation Proclamation in the view of some, didn't do enough fast enough or go far enough. And even our founding father, George Washington, and while some of these things I, I, I really get, I mean, the notion of statues to Robert E. Lee and people that wanted to tear apart the Union and, uh, you know, pretending as if what they were engaged in was not a bad thing, I, I think is a little ridiculous. 
So taking the statues out of the center of the plaza, the town square probably makes sense. Um, sending them over to the smelter, I'm not so sure about that. Maybe they ought to be in a place where they can be used as teaching tools. But in the big picture, I'm wondering, your thoughts on the, the current level of so-called cancel culture, and are we ultimately running the risk here of, well, frankly, no one in history living up to today's standards because the time in which they lived, life was very different. Not that it was better or worse, but very different. And so as a result, I have to wonder uh, how many of the people that we have respect and regard for today in modern American culture will fail to pass muster 50 years hence, and they too will be erased from the history books. What's the inherent danger here, in your opinion? Well, you know, I I, I kind of chuckle because you know if you're not laughing, you're crying. Uh, but let's let's go to today's day and age. In 2008, Barack Obama went and was interviewed by Rick Warren in a in a big uh, town hall, and he proudly proclaimed that marriage was between a man and a woman. Now, if you are on the LGBT side, that would be a criminal offense. So I would assume that now Barack Obama is no longer allowed to be named after our high school is allowed to be named after Barack Obama or no statues of Barack Obama. Uh, and that's the lunacy of it, Craig, because this isn't about righting wrongs. Uh, if you go back, there's something called critical theory. It was developed in the Frankfurt School, which started over in Europe, and it came over here to New York. And one student summed it up. It is the destructive criticism of all things West. And not to bore your listeners with a history lesson, there's a fellow by the name of uh, Gramsci, and he, Antonio Gramsci, and he was an Italian communist who went over to Lenin's Russia and saw that even though the Bolsheviks had grabbed power by force, they did not win the hearts of the people. And he said, this will not last because you cannot, you cannot keep communism if the people do not embrace it. And the reason the people weren't embracing it, Craig, was Christianity. So critical theory was developed to basically criticize everything Western so that the people would no longer be connected to Western, uh, the Western civilization, the Western way of thinking. You cut off their roots, you sever it, and that's where we are now, Craig, because everything that has happened from the counterculture of the 60s to now has been a relentless attack on everything West. Don't, don't even bring into account that slavery still exists today in Africa. It still exists today in the Middle East. It still exists today in Central Asia. Forget the fact that even though the West did participate in slavery, it was the first civilization to move for its abolition. Uh, it it's, it's absolutely shows a great historical ignorance of this country that we could say that we are rooted in evil. Because if you go through any civilization, Craig, I don't care whether it is the Arab civilization, the ancient Chinese civilization, the Mongols, uh, the Romans, the Egyptians, the Sumerians, all of these civilizations had virtue and vice. Slavery was their vice. So why is it that we are just focus solely on slavery. By the way, we don't have slavery in this country anymore, and we've been working towards a reconciliation of that. But the problem is, Craig, everything you just described doesn't want reconciliation. It wants retribution. And why? Because it's all about tearing down 
what this country is so we can replace it with something else. And that something else is a form of cultural Marxism. And I know it sounds somewhat of a conspiracy theory, but if you go back and research critical theory, not critical race theory, I'm talking about critical theory, you'll see this has all been, it's all been written not last year, not last decade, but I'm talking about a half century ago. So this has been in the works, and I think most Americans recognize that there is a race problem in this country. Most Americans want to empathize with African Americans who are stigmatized at some point in their life. But I think most Americans also recognize that we are an inherently good country, and we try to do our best whenever we can. And this whole wokeness and this whole uh, cancel culture isn't about lifting us up while pointing out some differences or pointing out some mistakes. It's about crushing any sense of the old guard, and that is problematic. And, you know, listen, there's, there's plenty of sins, certainly, for which we are culpable and should repent. And I think that uh, down through the years of our relatively brief history, comparatively speaking, up against other cultures and other nations, uh, that, that we've made some great advancements. Now, do we have a long way to go yet? Absolutely. Have we backslid in, in arenas and in places and at times and in ways? Oh, undoubtedly we have. Can we say that the progress has been at the pace that which we, we ought to uh, feel good? Probably not. We, we've, we've probably been a lot slower on the uptake than we should have been. Uh, and yet somehow the notion that we're going to make up for past sins um, of the, the, the current generation or, or generations that go back to our founding, if not to our discovery, and by removing their name from the history books is somehow going to make it all right, well, it doesn't, and it shows an extreme, not only lack of, of understanding, but I think, as you're suggesting, Joe, uh, touches on the notion that there's an, another agenda afoot here that's not singularly about correcting wrongs, um, making sure that there's a greater sense of equality and parity for all people, living up to... Uh, perhaps for the first time, that notion as we see uh, it in, in ensconced in the the Constitution that that uh, all men are created equal. We kind of invented the phraseology from a secular government position, and then after we wrote it, said, "Okay, back to business as usual." So the fact that we have work to do to correct all of that, I, I, I am 110 percent in agreement with. Where I think it, it's dangerous is to suddenly suggest that. Everything associated with the times, the people, it was all evil, it was all wrong, it was all terrible. And, and if that be the case, then, you know, what do you say about a country who single-handedly went in, in two major theaters of war, in the Pacific and in Europe, and, and were it not for the brave men and women of the United States, uh, Europe today uh, would likely be all speaking German, and certainly major swaths of the Pacific would all be speaking Japanese. And, and yet we came in, we fought somebody else's war, drove out the bad guys, restored order, and then in the places where we bombed them into the next century, at our own expense, rebuilt everything. Well, that, that hardly sounds like a intrinsically evil country to me. 
And, and you're 100% correct. I mean, this country is the most charitable. It puts other nations first many times. I mean, that was the whole debate we had over the last four years was how much we were putting other countries first in terms of not paying their fair dues, whether it be NATO or whether it be through trade. And, and the thing that I, I want to point out is when we're dealing with these issues of, of race, um, we often forget, you know, what happened in Atlanta. Now, I think the shooter has said that it had nothing to do with race. He had a addiction, and he was acting out on that addiction. But let's look at the Asian community. You know, I hear a lot of talk about white privilege, and I just don't – it doesn't exist. And I'll tell you why. Because if you look at the Asian community, per capita, they make more money than any other ethnic group in the country. And you look at what they do and how they do it. They get married. They have families. They graduate high school. They do the things necessary to succeed. And yet they are punished and penalized. If you look at college applications, if you look at all of these things where we're now being told that we have to tamp down on the admissions of the Asian community because it's not fair. Well, Craig, what's not fair is that the Asian community is doing what it takes to succeed, and we're going to punish that. And that's what it comes down to, Craig. What we're seeing here is a form of Marxism that is trying to infiltrate and basically say, you know, the old way we were just talk, uh, talking about in the last segment or two segments ago was the rugged individualism, that we pick ourselves up by our bootstraps, we build what we can build, and we do what we can do because we want to succeed. That is what the Asian community has done. And behind them is not white folks. It is the Indian, the Hindu population. They're doing it. These folks are succeeding not because of race, not despite race, but because they have basically harnessed that rugged individualism, that energy it takes to succeed. And we shouldn't punish people because of success. I think what we have to do, Craig, is we have to find out if there are roadblocks to success remove those roadblocks, but once those roadblocks are removed, let people succeed on their own. In this country, we are not guaranteed the equality of outcome. We are guaranteed the equality of opportunity and the equality of rights. It's up for us or up to us to do the other 75 percent. Well, and I, and I certainly that. agree with you on that point, that, that, that there is no guarantee of, of equality of outcome, only the opportunity. That said, uh, we're going to have to agree to disagree here that, that I think that there are a plethora of examples of um, uh, white privilege that has, in the end, resulted in certain people groups in this nation to not be afforded the same level of opportunity. And you, you see that everywhere from the quality of inner city schools versus schools in suburbia to even intrinsic racist policies or attitudes, maybe not written policies, but attitudes that come out in things like a hiring and advancement to, for, you know, uh, m moving up the corporate ladder, things of that sort. So I will have to agree to disagree on that point. I think there's a long way to go. And I think that, you know, the old adage, you walk a, a mile in another man's shoes, I think that there would be plenty of people out there that say they have been direct recipients of the negative impact of so-called white privilege. Now, maybe white privilege is not the, the most identical or, or ideal, rather, moniker for what has happened, but I, I think that there is a great degree to which we still have a long way to go before we've fully 
address that. And, you know, these are areas not only in terms of what happens institutionally, but the bigger, broader issue here is the impact of what happens in the heart. And, you know, if, if the heart is right, uh, then these other matters will take care of themselves. And if the heart isn't right, well, there's not hope, much hope for any of us. Let me take a time out here. We're going to come back with some closing comments. Joe, hold that thought because uh, they're going to get a shepherd's crook on me otherwise. <laughs> we'll be right back. Joe Murray is with us. Yeah, love it. Say we're going to agree to disagree, and then don't let the guest speak his mind. Well, you know, there's there's more of that 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 censorship at play here, folks. <laughs> we'll come back to more of our conversation with Joe Murray right after this. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. So in a quite ungentlemanlike fashion, just prior to the break, I asked Joe Murray kind of the, the proverbial <laughs> have you stopped robbing banks lately question, and then, of course, immediately went to a commercial break and didn't afford him an opportunity to uh, to answer. So, uh, Joe, you're going to get the final word. All right. Well, real brief. Well, Greg, I don't think we're that far apart on the issue. I just have objection with the label white privilege because just like I would not label the African-American community with a broad brush or the Asian community with a broad brush, I don't think you can do that to the white or Caucasian community because I know many Irish Catholics, many Germans who came to this country and did not get the privilege of some other Caucasians in this country. Uh, I think it basically is going to boil down to economic advantage, and that is why I want to make sure that every race, creed, or religion has the opportunity to succeed is because once you unlock your economic potential, everything else seems to fall away. And, and I appreciate you making that point, Joe, because you're right. I mean, again, we want to be accurate and, and also historically uh, honest here that, yes, there have been people groups that we kind of always think, and I think maybe this is what's so troubling about uh, the, the, the current cancel culture, uh, that it point, paints a very broad brush and seems to lump everybody into the same stack, uh, forgetting that there were groups that came in different phases into the United States, certainly in the late 1800s and early 1900s, uh, that came from Europe and were nevertheless discriminated against quite significantly. Uh, the, the Irish... Uh, immigrants to the United States at the turn of the century, the last century I'm referring to, was certainly Italian immigrants. Many suffered at the hands of great discrimination and, um, you know, ha had a huge struggle. So you're, you're, I, I, we will agree on that point that it does tend to be a phrase that is kind of a broad brush. And, yeah, we can't deny the fact that money plays a major role, and we can oftentimes see that even played out um, certainly in the judicial system, that oftentimes yeah. if it isn't your race that plays a role, it's certainly money or the lack thereof that does. Well, it's don't, always going to be a color. It's just that the color is green. So, I mean, that, that's that, right. That, that's, <laughs> yeah, and I think yeah. That's, yeah that's let's not leave out green on. privilege in this case here. And we're not talking about the luck of the Irish from yesterday either. 
<laughs> well, Joe, we're 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 plumb out of time. See, this this is what happens that when we get Joe on the air, we we get a chance yeah. to get such good give and take and dialogue going on, and and kind of unfolding all the critical issues of the day. That before you know it, an entire hour has blown by, and uh, you know we're, we're required to pay him, I think, some ridiculous amount of money, like one hundred and fifty thousand dollars per appearance. So we can't do it that often, but we sure relish the times when we can. Joe, <laughs> it is always such a delight to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with you, and, and, and I especially love the fact, and I want listeners to know this about you before, before we uh, turn a corner here and let you go, uh, even in the example of our dialogue tonight, uh, the notes that came in from my producer said, he's, qu I'm quoting here, he's so ready to talk about everything, and she has everything in capital letters, and uh, you certainly uh, proved that because you didn't hesitate at anything I threw at you tonight, which is why we love to have you on the show so much, and listeners love you too. And I love to be here, Craig. Listen, we're going to do this more often, my friend, and listen, you be safe out there in California, and I hope to talk to you real soon. All right, you all do the same. Thanks so much for your time. There is constitutional lawyer, writer, reporter, former political operative with Pat Buchanan's presidential campaign, Mr. Joe Murray. All right, we're going to help you get around the corner here with a traffic update. When we come back, Dan Beltran's going to help us see what happened in the markets as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. 